0: Hey, uh, welcome to the episode 24 of Take It EV 2.4, this time available as a motion picture. Today we are talking about batteries. How do they work? You know, the pack voltage. Will we ever see them charging in minutes? All that good stuff. So uh, sit back and relax and uh, watch the episode, listen to the interview. We've got an interview with Ewan McTurk, um, he's been requested by so many people, we finally found the time uh, to sit down and, and talk about it, sadly not in person, but you know, hopefully this is going to be enjoyable, um, and it's going to be available on YouTube as well, if you're listening to this as an audio. Uh, apologies in advance for the quality of the recording, it was a Skype conversation and I couldn't use this setup to, uh, to record it sadly. Uh, But nonetheless, the format and the questions, you know,
1: it's all worth it. So, So, uh, yeah, thanks for for having us on. I'm Dr Ewan McTurk and I'm a consultant battery electrochemist who's been working with and driving electric vehicles for just over a decade now. I'm also the creator of the YouTube series Plug Life Television, which explains complex battery electrochemistry. In a way that anyone can understand, and also demonstrates how the uh, entire nations can can decarbonise their transport, uh, not just uh, cars, but looking at all you know, other forms of transport too, and uh, also busts many myths around battery tech along the way.
0: Cool. Um, so, should I refer to you as uh, Doctor Ewan or just is Ewan? Fine? I'll just go with Ewan. <laughs>
1: okay. I, you know, yeah,
0: um, I know. I know it takes a very long time to actually get you know the doctor in front of your name. So, some people sure, prefer sure. others, you know. Let's let's go with uh, casual then. Um, So, I've I've got loads of smart, uh, you know, listeners. I don't want to take away from them, but obviously, it would be nice to just have like a basic uh, understanding of what is a battery and why do we need them and what's so great about them.
1: Yeah. So, a battery is an electrochemical means of storing. Energy of, of storing electricity It's a, a very efficient way of of storing energy as well. Um, if you look at the likes of a, a round trip efficiency of a, of a lithium ion battery in terms of energy in versus energy out, it's typically about eighty five percent efficient, if not more. Um, so you know you compare that to other technologies. You know you compare that to the the low tens of percent efficiency of an internal combustion engine or sort of 50 to 60% efficiency of a fuel cell. Um, it's certainly a very efficient way of, of storing energy. Admittedly, in terms of the um, capacity that can, be in sto- that can be stored per, uh, per, kilo- per kilogram you know, gravimetric energy density, or uh, per litre volumetric energy density, um, that's where batteries have generally fallen down over the years. But we're now seeing with the uh, the last sort of decade or so of developments in particular with electric vehicle batteries with lithium ion um, that, you know, that's genuinely not becoming a, an issue anymore. You know, you, you've got sort of budget-esque um, vehicles like the Renault Zoe, like the MG, uh, the MG5 that can do, you know, close on 200, if not more, 200, than 200 miles per charge. Um, and, you know, their, their costs are broadly comparable with an equivalent internal combustion engine vehicle. Um, so, you know, given that uh, most people need to stop before 200 miles of continuous driving otherwise they can't feel their legs um you know that's that's easily enough range so batteries are are definitely at a stage now where we're 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 seeing a, a mass takeoff on on electric vehicle uptake um, because we've kind of reached that sweet spot. But lithium-ion batteries are nowhere near done yet, um, and there's all sorts of exciting chemistries we'll get onto later on as well, no doubt in this chat. Um, so batteries are they've they finally caught up with um, with road transport and other transport uh, you know, means as well, um, having been a, a fantastic starting point for um, horseless carriages. You know, at the end of the Victorian <laughs> era. But that was when roads were particularly rubbish and top speeds were very low. Actually, lead acid batteries back then could give you about a hundred miles per charge because Indeed. you didn't need much power because the top speed was only going to be about five or six miles or, or you know, five or six miles per hour. Yeah. Um of course when roads improved and top speeds improved, the power required to sustain those top speeds got higher, and that's when lead acid just couldn't cope with it. Um, but lithium ion we're now at that stage where we, we can we can actually provide that amount of energy and that amount of power that's required to sustain a, a, a modern vehicle to the, the standards that we would expect.
0: Okay, um, and obviously, like just in terms of the the batteries, like the basics, it literally just stores electrons, right? That's the, the like the uh, very low level. Yeah, so I mean, it,
1: it, it stores it in, in means of a of, of a chemical reaction. And depending on the chemistry, you know, there, there are so many different chemistries out there. Okay. A lead acid battery is a completely different beast to a lithium-ion battery, for example. And if anything, lithium-ion batteries are probably one of the most different chemistries to any of the kind of predecessors within the automotive world. If you look at lead acid, if you look at nickel cadmium, nickel methyl hydride, Lithium ion is very different because the only thing that takes part in the reaction really is is lithium atoms, which, when the battery is fully charged, all the lithium atoms are intercalated or or pigeonholed into um, sheets of, of of graphene that make up the graphite within the negative electrode. So they they fit in between those layers of graphene in little pigeonholes. Okay, and you know they're they're all there. Um, when it comes to discharging the battery, what happens is that the lithium atoms each lose an electron and you know, become a positively charged lithium ion that is able to travel through the cell, through the, the separator and the electrolyte, the conductive, ionically conductive liquid um, that has a lithium based salt in it that allows lithium ions to travel between the two electrodes. And that then pigeonholes into a lithium metal oxide structure in the, the positive electrode. But the electron can't go through the cell, through the inside of the cell. It needs to find another way to go and recombine with that lithium, you know, with that lithium ion. So it has to take the external circuit, which is whatever you've plugged that battery into. In this case, an electric vehicle. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. that it makes it power
0: thing. to you know whatever you plugged yeah, into yeah. it. Yeah. That's 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 a. Much better explanation than I would, could, you know, come up with. <laughs> uh, but then that's why you're the expert. Uh, the, um, so, so so far in, in sort of electric cars, uh, you know, that we see on the market today and for the past, I don't know, about 10 years, the battery packs have been 400 volt based. Um, hmm. But we, we've, we've seen recently an increase or, or some Audiants uh, started uh, uh, testing uh, 800 volt, and Porsche Taycan is already uh, 800 volt based system. I think all, one of the LDs is as well, if I'm not mistaken. E-tron is it? Uh, or um, I
1: think the E-tron might actually be limited to 400. Um, oh, okay, but I could be wrong, but I, I'm sure that they'll have an 8 volt uh, sorry 8 volt 800 volt considerably <laughs> more impressive system <laughs> system on the way. Yeah. Uh,
0: do you think that um, you know? Never mind the the, the battery chemistry, but um, From from your perspective, do you think that uh, that's going to go further? So, uh, are we going to see twelve hundred volts, you know, three thousand volts batteries packs in the future?
1: Hmm, I I think that eight hundred volts is a pretty good trade off because it's already something you do not want to drop a spanner across the top of. It's not something you accidentally want to touch both of those terminals. Realistically, if you're going above, um, now this depends on which engineer you talk to, but sort of forty eight volts to seventy two volts. You go above that and you want to really start wearing big, thick rubber gloves, you know, the proper um, the PPE, the personal protective yeah. equipment that's rated for high voltage. Um, because whereas AC electricity will blow you away from it, so you touch it and it, it blows you clear of it, DC, which is what you get in a battery, will stick you to it. So, um, you know, the only way that you're getting off of that is if someone pulls you off of it with a hook um an insulating hook uh, or once the battery is depleted so um you know you, you definitely want to avoid um, going anywhere near high voltage systems if you if you can avoid it if you can avoid it obviously within an electric car you're never going to come into contact with that um <clears throat> and you know there's, there's so much safety mechanisms built into an ev um, that even when it comes to dropping out that battery pack They've got um, like midpoint isolators, which will section the battery pack into lower voltage sections. Lower voltage, not not necessarily down to module level, uh, but, you know, certainly make it a much more bite-sized kind of voltage for a a mechanic to handle or an engineer to to handle. Yeah. Um, 800 volts is particularly good because that means that um, you can use less current to achieve a higher power, power is current times voltage. We're already seeing the limitations of 400 volt packs with today's high power charging infrastructure, because um, you look at uh, quite a lot of rapid char- or high power chargers that are out of, uh, out there at the moment. Um, the likes of the the InstaVolt systems and uh, some of the ones that uh, Osprey are starting to use, Motor Fuel Group as well, that are kind of 125 to 150 kilowatts. And um, those are, you know, that's very much an up-to figure. It's not necessarily, it will definitely charge your car at that. Obviously, if you have like an older Nissan Leaf that tops out at 50 kilowatts, um, you're not going to get higher than that. But if you have something like, uh, I think the Audi e-tron says that it will do 150, 155 kilowatts. If you were to plug into one of these rapid chargers, uh, high power chargers that says it will do up to 125, up to 150 kilowatts, then power is limited to the maximum current that the cable on that rapid charger or high power charger can provide, and the voltage of the battery pack. Now bearing in mind that it's a 400 volt battery, and bearing in mind that the vast majority of these high power chargers top out at 250 amps on CCS, that means you're limited to 400 times 250, which is 100 kilowatts. Mm -hmm. So you know, your e-tron driver is going to be like, this isn't charging my car as fast as it could. Actually, yeah, this it's just the, the limits of it. That's the absolute maximum. Then, you know, you, you unplug and a Porsche Taycan comes along that has an 800-volt battery pack. It will draw that full 125, 150 kilowatts. No bother. Yeah. So that's part of the appeal. That's why we've got the Hyundai Ionic 5 has an 800-volt pack architecture. It seems to be the way to go because it means you can get away with using thinner, lighter cables. That need less cooling as well because there's less current going through them. Um, because you know, if you have a 400 volt system that will do greater than 150 kilowatts, you're really starting to look into cooling these big, heavy cables. And um, you know, you it starts to get to the realms of needing reasonable upper body strength. Yeah, um, yeah. And plus, you know, there's the uh, there's the the issue of uh, what happens if the cooling system kind of corrodes through to the electrical system and all of us, I believe there have been some teething problems with some of those charger types. 800 volt basically resolves that issue. To go any higher than that would, you know, to 1200 volt to 3000 volt, as you suggested. Um, to be honest, for road-based applications, I doubt that we would need to go to that because, you know, if you look at the CCS standard, it can do up to 350 kilowatts. The Porsche Taycan can recharge itself in in almost no time at 270 kilowatts, but do we really need cars to charge faster than this? Because the Taycan and the Tesla Model Three and you know, various modern EVs can rapid charge within the average dwell time at a UK motorway service station. They are adding hundreds of miles in under 25 minutes. And um in fact when the latest version, the V three supercharger, two hundred and fifty kilowatts, was unveiled in the US, um now bearing in mind that the US is where people are used to doing stupidly high mileage, like mega road trips in Europe were a bit more um a bit more limited in our in what we would consider an acceptable mileage. Indeed. Um Tesla model three drivers actually complained in a good way about the V three superchargers because their car was fully charged before they'd had a whiz and a sandwich. So, you know, genuinely, the, the convenience of an EV, part of the convenience is that rapid charging, it doesn't need to be five minutes, because a petrol car, you have to go out of your way to the petrol station, and that includes at the motorway service station, you've stopped, you've gone for a whiz and a sandwich, you now need to join the queue for that petrol station, fill up with the petrol, go into the shop and pay by card, blah, blah, blah. But with a Tesla or, or a, a, an Ionic 5 or a Taycan or, you know, to be honest, most modern EVs, um, you know, you sit on the, well, you, you plug it into the Ionity charger, you plug it into the Tesla supercharger, you go into the service station, have a whiz and a sandwich and come back to a car that's pretty much fully charged. So you've just sa- you you've spent literally seconds of your time recharging it. Um, although it's physically taken longer to refill than the petrol car did, in terms of your own time, You've only spent seconds, not the best part ten minutes. So I, I I don't think there's any point in a higher voltage. I think we've probably reached peak okay. pack architecture. Could could go higher, who knows? But I think 800 volts is pretty reasonable for for real world use.
0: In in terms of like the uh, the pure engineering, how do you think they are achieving that? Because obviously there is you know we we already know that there's a certain limit in terms of the um, uh, storage per cubic feet or meter uh, uh, apologies um I just unplugged myself um yeah. uh, the you know the, the storage space so obviously you're yeah. limited uh, uh, that way um and obviously each cell has certain voltage how do you make sure how, how do you then come from you know 400 volt pack in the same areas uh, storage space to 800 volts what do you do? like do you, can you actually engineer or or design each, each individual cell to have double the the voltage um, oh god no no, no? Um, okay.
1: if you were to do that with a lithium ion cell you would fry it so um the you know, a typical lithium ion cell that has a cobalt based chemistry um, that said there's an increasingly small amount of cobalt in lithium ion cells but you know if you're looking at the the likes of nmc nickel manganese cobalt uh, oxide Um, that's the most commonly found in electric vehicles, or NCA, nickel, cobalt, aluminium oxide, used by a lot of Teslas, then typically the minimum cell voltage, according to the manufacturer's spec sheet, will be between 2.5 and 3 volts. The car will probably be reluctant to take it below 3 volts, regardless of what the spec sheet says. And the maximum voltage is going to be 4.2 volts. The car will likely be reluctant to take it much above 4.15. Incidentally, the same type of cell, theoretically, in a smartphone or a laptop, the manufacturers would push those limits all for the sake of a few minutes extra runtime. There's really not that much extra energy to be gained, but you lose a lot of lifespan. So EVs have those kind of buffers, um, those state of charge or voltage buffers that just help to protect the lifespan by reducing degradation that happens at very high or very low voltage. So um, yeah, if you go above 4.2 volts in a conventional lithium-ion cell, then you start to degrade the electrolyte Against the positive electrode, the cathode, um, that can lead to not only reduced performance and reduced capacity, etc., um, but you you can end up um, with uh, flammable gases being created within the cell. Uh, it becomes okay. very volatile, and that's when you can end up with uh, gassing of well, very very hot gases. You can end up with fire um, as well. So you know, you don't want to be going. Um, you know, anywhere above 4.2 volts with a lithium-ion cell realistically. I think. Um, and as long as you keep them within their safe limits, they're, they're great. You have to do something really, really stupid to blow up a lithium-ion cell. Trust me, I worked in the abuse chambers at WMG, University of Warwick. It's damn hard to blow these things up on purpose. Uh, you know, you have to be properly maniacal about how you treat them. <laughs> anyway, so, um, yeah, what you'd be doing at a pack level to achieve 800 volts is you would not be building, um, you know, like, you know, charging each cell to double the voltage. Absolutely not. What you'd be doing is the pack has a an SP configuration, a series parallel configuration. So cells in series are connected positive to negative to positive to negative and so on. And that creates the series step kind of staircase to get to the right system voltage that you're after. Um, but that staircase might not be wide enough to get enough electrons up and down it because you're limited to um, the, the maximum current of an individual cell in series uh, because that you know that current has to go through that one cell per step if that makes sense yeah so if you are basically trying to funnel um i'm trying to think like oxford circus tube traffic up a up a a typical household staircase that's not going to happen you need it to be a wider staircase you need to connect them in parallel you so need multiple positive. escalators
0: or, or, or yeah. gases basically. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay.
1: So in, in parallel, you yeah. know, you've know, you got positive to positive, negative to negative. You've increased the capacity of the battery pack. Um, so the, the overall uh, energy that you can store within the battery pack uh, is equal to the voltage multiplied by the capacity in ampere hours. So what you would do to switch from a 400-volt architecture to an 800-volt architecture in the same space is you would half the number of cells in parallel and double the number of cells in series. So that is the exact same number of cells. You're just connecting the bus bars differently. Yeah. So say for the sake of argument that it was an 8S4P pack, that's going to be nowhere near 400 volt architecture. 400 volt, I should know this. i am get my calculator. Let's do this properly, shall we? Um, yeah, <laughs> that's going to annoy me now. Um, yeah, so it'd be yeah, it'd be... 192, isn't it? God's oh, sake. Yeah, yeah, 192. Um, yeah, I was, I was going mad there. I was thinking, is that the maximum voltage or the nominal voltage, which is like half charged? Have I got it the right way around? Yes, I do. So um, yeah, 96S uh, 4P would become 192S 2P. Uh, and that means you've got your 800 volts. You've, ulti- you've ultimately got the same capacity, but it means you could charge the car in theory faster on yeah. a, you know, a, a okay. high power charger that says it's up to yeah. whatever many kilowatts, but is limited to x number of amps.
0: I I do wonder if the because obviously still, you still you can still rock up to a charger that's fifty kilowatts, say, and mm. it's only going to allow you to charge up to say five hundred volts. So you have to be yeah. backwards compatible. And I, I do wonder yeah. if they have any ability to to change the number of SNPs you know around so that it's four hundred eight hundred volts depending on what's required. Mm. Uh-huh. Now
1: I have heard of who, who was it? I was reading about the other day. There's definitely some manufacturers, or at least one manufacturer, that is looking into the switching of the architecture so it can derate to 400 volts for those kind of um, situations. I suppose, um, and it just makes it that bit easier to to work with as well um, from an engineering perspective. So yeah. that is something that has been toyed with. Um whether the Porsche already does that or not is a different matter um or whether it's um some sort of step down uh voltage converter that it has within the car yeah. but you know the fact is that it's it's able to take a full eight hundred volts whereas a a four hundred volt e v could not and would be limited to um you know obviously to to charging at whatever the maximum current in that cable would facilitate
0: okay um so i always thought that the so how how is it possible to increase the voltage of a cell or is it uh, obviously the area of the cathode and anode that that gives you the the, the amperage right um, what yeah, changes so the, the, what changes the voltage of the cell
1: so the capacity of the cell as you say is um determined by the total surface area of active material you know the cathode and the anode together um and it, so you you know it, in a cylindrical cell you've got two long continuous strips one of anode and one of cathode and they're all wound up in what's called the jelly roll the other way of doing it is you get lots of stacks of you know your your um, anode and cathode anode and cathode, and cathode you connect them all in parallel inside the cell um, and that gives you you know an increased capacity of cell the way that you would increase the voltage of the cell um, to be honest with conventional lithium ion chemistry we're not really going to be increasing the voltage that much uh, because you need to start looking into um, you know, redox mediators and, and and sort of basically sort of dopants, if you wish, within the electrolyte um, which help to reduce these degradation mechanisms that happen at high voltage because electrolytes at the moment are not very stable at the high, you know, high voltage in, in lithium-ion cells that the electrolytes that we use today. There are attempts to try and stuff the voltage up towards five volts just to get a bit more capacity out of it um, but that does require a very sturdy electrolyte that's not going to degrade. So, um what happens actually uh, with your um, you know, with this electrolyte degradation uh, is that the potential difference of the cell or the voltage of the cell is the potential difference between the anode and the cathode. So each of these electrodes has a so-called standard potential or, or, or has a potential, I should say, which you cannot measure in isolation. You need to measure it against something else. Um, so that's why voltage is the potential difference. It's, yeah. you know, it's... it's Cathode minus anode. So what we do within the world of, of battery electrochemistry is we know the, uh, the potential of the anode and the potential of the cathode versus lithium. We can't, you know, we can't measure that in, um, in an actual cell. You, you need to put in what's called a reference electrode, You know a lithium reference electrode, a third electrode, which would allow you to uh, you know, accurately measure it. But we have a rough idea of what those potentials are from the lab. And the high potential of the cathode when the cell is fully charged, because when the cell is charging, the cathode, the positive electrode, gets more positive, gets a higher potential. The negative electrode gets a more negative potential going down towards zero volts versus lithium. And uh, at uh, a certain threshold, just above four volts, really, your your cathode potential uh, gets to the point where this electrolyte starts to degrade, so that's what's causing the issue. That's where the instability comes from. The electrolyte cannot cope with that potential, so it's it's not technically the voltage that's the issue; it's the potential of the, the cathode that's the the problem.
0: Okay, so we're basically we're testing the limits, and then we kind of finding in reality we need to use it within these two uh, parameters to actually end up with something that's usable for you know certain amount of cycles and all that. Um, mm. Okay. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting subject to me because the, because um, obviously when you think about the, uh, the pack that's eight hundred volts now versus four, four, uh, 400 volts, um, you know, one of the ways you would think, okay, we each cell has increased voltage, but, but like you said, that's not the way this works. And I was wondering, and I needed somebody to actually explain this to me. So yeah. thank you. Um, no um, so, I the question that I get asked all the time, and I'm, you know, we've already. Uh, touched on that but the uh, will we ever see a battery that recharges in a couple of minutes or will 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 it always be the way it is when you have the curve and you kind of you know you have to kind of uh, uh, throw the electrons at the right speed into the battery to mm. be safe
1: so in the lab yes we'll likely see um, an increasing number of batteries that can recharge in a very short period of time Um exactly what capacity they will have, exactly what energy density they will have is a different matter. Um, there are some academic developments that have managed to get recharging times down to 10 minutes or less. Um, for example, this has been achieved by heating the cells up to about 60 degrees C during rapid charging. And lithium-ion cells do not really like to go above 30 degrees C, to be honest. Um, you know That's when degradation starts to increase, particularly above 40 degrees C, to be fair. Um, you know, 30 is okay, but the the cooling system will try and keep the battery you know, down towards about 25 if it can. Um, you know, above 40, you're you're really gonna for for a prolonged exposure, going to be degrading the cell. So 60, like, why are we doing this? You know, why is that? Da- surely that will damage it. Turns out, during rapid charging, that um, the the trade off of the amount of degradation that takes place within a few minutes of super fast rapid charging versus the um, the lower internal resistance that comes from lowering the heat uh, means that you know you can stuff in uh, more energy in a quicker period of time as long as you immediately cool the battery afterwards. And actually Tesla does something similar to this with the superchargers because if you put in on a Tesla on the Satnav nav that you're going to a supercharger, it preheats the battery to yeah. about 50 degrees C in anticipation. So it's warmed up in time for arrival, and then as soon as it's finished charging, it immediately chucks on the cooling system to extract that heat again as quickly as possible. So that's something that's already been done today. Um, But then you've got the likes of the company Storedots, which has created a lithium-ion battery which can recharge in about five minutes. Um, However, there's the engineering implications of that, because that means you're dumping a lot of power for a long-range EV, or a lot of energy as well as a lot of instantaneous power in a very short period of time. And that entails a pretty sizable grid connection and a pretty uh, sizable piece of charging infrastructure in order to do that. And that adds expense and that's going to be passed on to the end user. So realistically, there will be some applications where that will be useful, but the additional cost of doing that is arguably not really justified in the real world. As I mentioned previously, Um, for the vast majority of people, that kind of 20-ish minute, maybe slightly longer refueling time or recharging time is actually perfect because that's enough time for you to stretch your legs, have a quick bite to eat, and that's what you were going to do anyway after X hundred number of miles, you know, um, and you're back on the road again. So do we really need them to charge that fast? I would say no. And of course, the vast majority of charging, now I'm not denying for a second that high power charging is essential because it's needed for when you're out and about, when you're undertaking these long journeys. But The vast majority of EV drivers are going to slow charge overnight, on street, in a charging hub, at home, um, at at fleets in a depot. that's going to be utilising excess renewable electricity overnight when nothing else is using electricity because everyone's asleep. So actually that helps to balance the grid and it's cheaper and you wake up to a full battery in the morning. So you've literally spent seconds of time doing hours of charging and you know, in some cases actually, if you're on dynamic electricity tariffs that track the wholesale price of electricity, if it's a particularly windy night, you could get paid to charge your car. So yeah, I, I I do have um I do have reservations about stupidly fast like let's try and replicate petrol refilling time sort of things, because do we really need to do that? The infrastructure is going to be mightily expensive. High power charging Hundred, hundred and fifty, three hundred and fifty kilowatt. Absolutely, but um, you know, much beyond that for a typical passenger car or van, probably not going to be that much of a biggie. If I'm honest,
0: yeah, I, um, it's something that I hear from people who never driven an EV. Never mind, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, they they've, they're just trying to think about the, uh, which is which is a fair fair enough, you know. Uh, like thinking scenario like you think i'm gonna i have this car i need to i'm gonna have to drive an ev in the future how will this compare but it's i always tell people it's like thinking okay well you know i used to have a holes in a buggy and now i'm thinking about um a car you know and trying to mm-hmm. do like for like it's it's never that way um i was just wondering the, the the question was just purely from engineering perspective like you know do you or or or, or scientific perspective i suppose um mm-hmm uh like i said uh you know the 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 sheer size of the connector would be and the cable would be just enormous and obviously the cost of that um never mind you know it wouldn't be bendable like it's just there's just so many things that mm. people don't think about in terms of physics um but you know um I, yeah there are already batteries uh, in in buses and uh, l- lorries and all, all sorts of things that uh, have a massive pantograph that just drops on top of the yeah, bus yeah. and recharges it within minutes. ABB makes what makes them. Um, my mm. my, um, well, I've been to Krakow um, in in Poland in uh, in mm. August, and just outside of the uh, the railway station there, they've got one of those chargers. The bus comes along, yeah, yeah. drops mm. in, and you know, it's done. But nobody wants that for. Uh, for a little electric car, a family car, you know, to so something to drop on top of it, just yeah. just to, to recharge. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, um,
1: it's very, yeah, it's very much horses for courses. Okay. And, uh, you know, the the bus idea is a really good one. I believe they may be using supercapacitors, um, at least in conjunction with batteries, if not exclusively supercapacitors, which do have crazy high power density. They're um, completely solid state so there's um, you know there's no ions moving in the structure it's all to do with charge particles sort of things um, and that means that you've you've got an incredibly long cycle life as well you know they can do like a million plus cycles without any issues um, but the energy density is comparatively very low it's about a tenth of that of lithium ion so I'm aware of some buses that have supercapacitors that do short hops between stops will use the pantograph system to recharge enough to get to the next bus stop and then charge there again and again and again and again. Um, Whereas you've got the likes of um, a company up in Dundee called Ember, uh, which is running intercity electric coaches from Dundee to Edinburgh and back again uh, on comfortably less than one charge. That's fully, you know, battery-powered electric buses. Um, And then they're using a a 150-kilowatt charger to to recharge um, at the Dundee Terminus. So. Yeah. I mean, batteries are, are more than capable of, of doing the distance, but uh, yeah, for the short hop idea with the, the pantographs, that is is something else is being done in some cities and it, it seems to work quite well.
0: I, th- I think they, they, they've they got lithium lithium iron, iron, iron uh, batteries that are just configured to, to charge at, at uh, you know, stupendously high speed, but mm-hmm. don't quote me on that. Because um, the, the bus driver that I was trying to engage with and talk to him about it, he had no idea, so, you know. (laughs) Serious, yeah. Uh, um, The, like, if we're going to have time, I I would like to actually go back to solid state batteries, because that's another question Mm -hmm. that, and that's another thing that actually comes back every so often, but um, I wanted to ask you first about, uh, because this is, we've touched on that that again, Um, why do this is the question that I get all the time and everyone gets that. It's, you know, it always says uh, this battery pack will charge up to 150 kilowatts, 70, whatever. Um, mm. And people are always interested, like, well, I've plugged it in and it's only charging at 20 degree, uh, 20 uh, kilowatts and then it jumps up to 70 for a couple of minutes and then drops off. Like, why is there yeah. a charging curve? Like, why, why can't we have the battery that just, you know, because when you're filling a bucket of water, say, mm. you, you're dumping it mostly, you know, at the highest speed you can and then you kind of just measure it towards the end why can't we do the same thing with the battery
1: so with um, the initial kind of slower charging speed that you mentioned before it starts ramping up that's probably because the battery or the charger is cold and it's only once they've kind of warmed up that the internal resistance decreases enough for the car and the charger to say yep yeah, okay get yeah, laldi and just you know stuff in um, as much power as we can deal with however In a battery, you have something called overpotential, and that is the voltage jump in comparison to when the battery was resting, when the individual cells were resting with uh, no current applied or or being stuffed into it, and then what happens when you charge it. And that means that that voltage does jump up a bit, and that is related to the internal resistance of the cell. So as you are charging the battery, as you start to approach a higher state of charge, the individual cell voltages reach their maximum voltage and they cannot exceed that or you end up with the electrolyte degradation that I mentioned previously. So the charger has no option but to throttle back the charging power that's being delivered to the vehicle to prevent the cells from exceeding their maximum voltage. So they've gone from constant current CC to constant voltage CV. So CCCV charging is a typical pattern for charging a battery. Um, or the individual cells within a battery, so that's why um, for a lot of electric vehicles, the time taken to go from zero to eighty percent state of charge on a rapid charger is about the same as going from eighty to a hundred percent. Now. With that, that does vary depending on your EV. Um, some of them will, will tape, you know, taper off in a, a bit more of a sort of conservative linear manner. I believe Teslas are quite bad for that, actually. Um, whereas some of them will go full power and then just suddenly drop off a cliff. Um, and then there's some that kind of do a stepped reduction. And that's all down to the discretion of the, of the algorithm that has been employed by the battery management system for that particular car. Okay. So, you know some of them definitely go conservative to just try and um eke out that bit more lifespan by not putting too much stress on the cell um or cells, I should say, but um you know for a typical car uh around about eighty percent is when you start to see some significant charging uh power tapering off to be honest, you are quicker on a cross country trek discharging down to about twenty percent state of charge, then pulling into a, a you know a rapid charging hub and charging up to 80% and then getting on your way again, then you are waiting uh, for the car to get to 100% and then moving on. So you're actually, you're doing two things. One, you're saving your own time. And two, you're saving everyone else's time because you're freeing up that rapid charger for someone else who needs to use it to rapid charge. Because bear in mind, going from 80% to 100% on a rapid charger, you might as well be using an adjacent Type 2 destination charge point because you are wasting everyone's time. That is a key, key lesson in EV ownership. And it's something that annoyingly on free rapid chargers in particular, there's a lot of EV newbies, um, including some taxi drivers who who don't do this. And it's particularly annoying because, you know, especially in an area that has limited charging infrastructure, it's important to utilize it as efficiently as possible. And you're genuinely more efficient charging to 80-ish percent. Um, And for the vast majority of EVs, as I said, that 80 that I mentioned, that will vary depending on your car, but the vast majority of them are going to be nearer to 80 or 90 than they will be to 100%, that kind of taper off point. There's no point in just trying to eke that last drop, that last electron out of a rapid charger. If you really need the range, jump onto a Type 2 post next to it. If you can, free it up for the person behind you.
0: Yeah. Uh, So so does that mean that if... Someone designed a uh, battery pack that you know stays within twenty eighty uh, uh range and keeps it warm or at the optimal temperature for either discharge or charge that it would have a more flattened uh, uh, charging curve then
1: absolutely and we've we've seen this already because um the Audi e-tron has a reasonably big state of charge buffer at the top so it will rapid charge quite you know quite close to full power almost all the way up to hundred percent from what I've been told. Similarly, um, Tesla for a long time sold Model Ss with, I think it was the 75 kilowatt hour battery pack, but you had the option to buy that um, with only 60 kilowatt hours usable. And then you had to pay Tesla to unlock the rest of the capacity. And that meant that when you were supercharging, because that extra 15 kilowatt hours had been blocked out, what was 100% on the dash was nowhere near 100% in reality, which meant that the cell voltages weren't reaching 100%. And that car would you know, would it would supercharge pretty much full power, well, you know, very very high power all the way up to a hundred percent.
0: Speaking of of uh, of you know charging to only say eighty percent, do you do you have to charge batteries all the time to hundred percent or every so often to hundred percent then, or would that battery be because that's obviously the the, the issue with it, right? Because it never reaches that hundred. Um, yeah.
1: So um, if you are using a, a, you know, a destination charge point, like one on your driveway or one at your work or the shopping centre or whatever, then for most EVs, I would recommend charging and balancing the car to 100%, about once a month or two, just to recalibrate the battery management system. So it's it's kind of like, um, you know, if, you, if you're never fully charging your phone or your laptop and you're never fully discharging your phone or laptop, eventually it's kind of estimate, of how much is left in the battery gets a bit off, and imagine doing that with hundreds of cells in a battery pack. It, you know, it starts to kind of lose its way a bit. Yeah. So, um, to be honest, most electric vehicles are pretty resilient in that regard. But I would say, charge and balance, balance just means that all of the cells are gradually being topped up to the same voltage uh, because they will eventually stop to rise, you know, stop rising and falling as one. You know, there'll be a, a, some voltage discrepancy. So balancing it just means that they're all being brought back in line with each other as okay. best as possible. So that means that um, you know, you're know you keeping your battery in good nick and you're keeping the battery management system up to date on what the latest state of play is. For day-to-day use, if you've got a reasonably short range EV or a very, very long commute, then just like I did with my 50 mile round trip commute in my 24 kilowatt hour LEAF, I had no qualms about charging it to 100% every day and arriving back home with about 40% left in the battery, plugging in, and then charging to 100% again, because I knew I was going to be using that car a matter of hours after it had finished charging. Yeah. However, I would not charge that car to 100% and then leave it for a fortnight whilst I disappeared on holiday. Because that's when you start to get that, you know that, that electrolyte degradation I mentioned earlier at high potential for the cathode. And even with upper state of charge buffers it's good practice to avoid that because there are some cars that have particularly small upper SOC buffers. Um, The 30 kilowatt hour LEAF is notorious for this. So the 30 kilowatt hour LEAF, a lot of low mileage owners would leave them plugged in when as soon as they got home, they would plug it in. They would use it once a week to do a five mile round trip to Tesco and back and then they would plug it back in again. And that, because it was being so-called shallow cycled, it was never really being taken much lower than 80% state of charge and it was constantly being you know, topped up all the way to 100% and balanced. That means there's actually quite a few low mileage, 30 kWh hour Nissan Leafs out there that have already got signs of battery degradation. They're missing some of their state of health bars. So I would strongly recommend for infrequent use or for like COVID lockdowns or going away on holiday, try and store the car between about 50 and 80% state of charge. That's kind of an optimum sweet spot that means that you're not going to be suffering from degradation, but you've also got sufficient juice in the battery to stop it from self-discharging its way down to zero, even if you leave it for months on end. Um, it, you have to have a car that has really high levels of parasitic drain from the uh, the onboard electronics, like you know Sentry Mode in the Tesla, for yeah. that to be an issue. Um, so, yeah. But that said, you know, I, I I now have a a Model S as well. And um, for that same round trip commute, I was charging it up to 80%. And then I was only bothering to plug it in again once it got to about 30 or 20%. You know, that whole thing about shallow cycling, particularly at high levels of SOC, that's kind of how you kill a lithium ion battery. So um, I recommend. You know, if as I said, if it's regular use, then and it's a short range, and you need that range, absolutely take it to a hundred percent, and then just plug it in once you're down below fifty percent. Um, for infrequent use, short runs, you know, commutes that you could do several of a week on one charge, um, you know, aim for about eighty percent, and then plug in around about twenty percent. Um, you know, just do the rough ballpark figures, but that's kind of an optimum for for battery lifespan. That's being a health freak about it. But the shallow cycling and leaving them at 100% for weeks and months on end, that is definitely more of a, a stark warning.
0: So, because so, I, I I can hear my some of the people I know screaming at me or, or asking the question, like, do you... Because obviously, unlike a bucket of water or, or a tank of fuel, you can't just put a measuring device and kind of judge, you know, it's, it's three quarters full or half full or whatever. Yeah. With, with a cell... You just have the voltage and uh, and mm-hmm. the temperature, and that's that's all you can guess basically. So, do you have to actually uh, charge? Because some people are being told that they have to charge to full every so phone just so that the BMS kind of knows where the when the where the extremity is. You know, does that mean that you have to discharge it every so phone then as well, just to know the, where the other end of it is? How does that work in your experience?
1: No, for yeah, for a, for a laptop or a smartphone. I would say, yeah, you know, you can do that so that it recalibrates the BMS. For an EV, I would not advocate doing that because that would mean you would end up on a hard shoulder somewhere. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I mean, that's the the kind of downside of it is you you will never really know the true capacity of an EV's battery because one, uh, you're never going to run it flat cuz uh, unless you have been severely screwed over by several <coughs> eco rapid chargers um but uh, the other thing is that um you've also got those upper and lower state of charge buffers which do still have capacity within them but the the car is just not going to use that for yeah. you know for the sake of extending its lifespan so um running it down nah i mean i i, I generally wouldn't run my cars down below 10 sorry I'm um, 20% unless i needed the range Uh, It's there for a reason, but again, you know, leave that kind of 20% buffer, partly for cell healthcare and partly to give yourself that bit of uh, leeway just in case. Um, Obviously, if you have a short-range EV and, you know, it's like a 50-mile range on it and you've got a 40-mile trip, then use it, go for it. I don't blame you. Um, But largely, with the the latest crop of EVs, those days are over. So, um, but that said, you know, there will be people... Like me, you have still got the 24 kilowatt hour leaf um, and there'll be people who've got like the, the Mitsubishi iMeeve and they use them as, as runabouts. Um, and yeah, as I say, by all means, use that range if, if you need to. But generally between 20 and 80% is the kind of sweet spot to be running them. Um, so yeah, it, to be honest, the battery management system's guess of what the capacity is and what the uh, state of health is Um, you know the the capacity today full capacity today versus capacity when it was new it's all to do with best guess algorithms because it can't physically measure it you would need to disconnect the battery from the ev and hook it up to some lab equipment to actually fully charge and fully discharge it to figure that one out um so yeah it will look at voltage it will look at temperature it will do coulomb counting you know the the ampere hours in and out and it will Kind of match the coulombs to the voltage profile and do some best guess measurements. Some of them are more accurate than others. The Leaf has a is, well. I mean, it's it's is known as a, its dashboard is known as a gasometer for a reason. It's particularly sensitive to ambient temperature and it's also particularly sensitive to charging speeds. For some reason, it predicts a lower state of health if you have um, if you if you're using the granny cable or if your car has a three point three kilowatt onboard charger than if your car has a 6.6 kilowatt onboard charger or you've been rapid charging it a lot, which, you know, you think it would be the other way around and it technically should be the other way around. It's just that its uh, algorithm's a bit wibbly-wobbly. Um, and on top of that, you know, that, to put it into perspective, the ambient temperature thing, I bought my car summer 2017, uh, the Leaf, um, and it had a state of health reading on Leaf Spy of 92%. And several, you know, about 10,000 miles later, uh, during the beast from the East February 2018, that brutally cold snap with all the snow and so on, the uh, state of health reading was 102%. So, uh, yeah, not technically possible. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I tell you what, I, I felt quite smug about it, even though I knew it was rubbish. <laughs> but, <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's all a pinch of salt, but there are some very clever companies out there working on advanced algorithms Trying to take what limited information we can get from the black box that is a lithium-ion battery or a lithium-ion cell okay. and trying to you know, greater predict its actual capacity, its actual state of health, its remaining useful life, these sort of things. Very, very bright minds working on that, but it'll take a little while before that starts to get adopted en masse in EVs
0: solid state batteries that's a that's the thing that that's a hype that's the sort of holy grail that everyone everyone mentions like oh yeah and you know we're gonna have soon uh, uh not not to mention the h words but i'm not gonna go there mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh you know we're, uh, solid state batteries are supposed to be the holy grail of evs and we're supposed to be able to recharge within minutes and have 700 mile uh mm-hmm. range cars and it's all going to be epic basically um what is your take on 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 solid state batteries?
1: So, yeah, solid-state is a it's an interesting one. You know, you're removing the separator and the liquid electrolyte and replacing that with an all-in-one separator slash solid electrolyte. Um, there are two different types of uh, solid-state electrolyte kind of families, if you wish. The first one is ceramic, which allows fast charging times, but is quite brittle. Not ideal for automotive applications if it breaks apart. The other one is polymer-based, and that is flexible, but its ionic conductivity for lithium is quite low, so the charging times are slower. And in fact, uh, Mercedes are already offering that kind of a crude polymer solid-state battery in their electric buses now. Um, But that is with the trade-off of increased range versus the lithium-ion model, but with slower charging times versus the lithium-ion model. So they've, they've kind of accepted the limitations of the chemistry today, but gone, yeah, some people will use that, some people will want it. So good on them for taking the plunge. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are attempts being made to do, well, some quite successfully in the lab, actually, to do hybrid chemistries um, between like a polymer ceramic that combine the best of both worlds. So yeah, that's really good because what we've seen with solid state electrolytes is that they are far more resistant to the growth of dendrites, little branch-like growths, which happen if you use, predominantly if you use, a pure lithium anode. So rather than the lithium atoms pigeonholing themselves in between layers of of graphite, in between layers of carbon, they would be placing onto a very thin bit of lithium foil. And if you do that in a lithium ion cell with a a liquid electrolyte, the lithium ions don't do the sensible thing and coat uniformly. They start to form these little branch-like growths um, and those can puncture the separator, cause an internal short circuit with the cathode, and that allows electrons to rapidly, um, you know, move between the electrodes, even if the cell isn't connected to anything. Rapid discharge, rapid uh, you know, heat generation, and rapid uh, potential fire. So, you know, what we ha- what we have with solid state is the ability to use a lithium foil uh, with vastly reduced likelihood of dendrite growth. Um, it's not necessarily completely been eliminated, but there are efforts to completely eliminate it. And, you know, the results are looking quite promising. So um, once that is ready, once that can be commercialized, you're looking at, yeah, I, I, as you said, the Holy Grail. Because yeah, you've, you've, you've removed the bulk of having all of that carbon in the anodes because you require six carbon atoms to hold one lithium ion or one lithium atom in a a lithium ion electrode so you've just removed all that bulk it means you can shove more active material in there because it's it's all lithium in the anode now and that is 100% of that anode could theoretically take part in the discharge reaction in a lithium ion cell so very very efficient uh the separator or sorry the the electrolyte um which replaces the separator now because it's solid state could in theory be made quite thin as well so you know you it's all adding up to a very compact design, a very energy-dense design. That's where you're getting those 500, 700-mile range EV ideas from. I and in theory, yeah, if you, if you manage to harness the best of the ceramic, um, you know, electrolytes, then you could get rapid charging. You could also get improved temperature uh, windows in which these cells could run. So they could actually deliver quite a lot of power in particularly cold Canadian winters. They could, you know, they, they could suffer from... Minimal degradation, heat-based degradation in, um, like you know, Dubai or somewhere like that. So, genuinely, it's 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 a pretty well-suited chemistry to some extreme environments. Um, But that said, you know, the existing lithium-ion gigafactories, uh, which may not necessarily be perfectly tooled for creating solid-state lithium cells, you know, billions have been invested, billion billions of dollars have been invested in all of these. hundreds upon hundreds of gigawatt hours of capacity. So lithium-ion is still here for the foreseeable future. There will be other chemistries which can be produced on lithium-ion production lines like sodium-ion, which you take a hit on energy density, but there's about a 30% cost reduction. So, you know, that would be used for your kind of cheap and cheerful entry-level EVs. That would be used for your electric buses and things. It would be a competitor for LFP. Interestingly, with LFP, though, we now have Tesla using LFP in the Chinese-built Model 3 because CATL, gigantic, uh, you know, manu- uh, manufacturer of batteries over in China, have developed this cell to pack packaging methodology that means that LFP, which is less energy dense, um, can actually be packaged in such a way that you can get a good couple of hundred miles range out of it, which was previously unthinkable. So, uh, yeah, solid state. I think it will be used in premium EVs. It will be used in stupidly long range EVs. But I'm keeping a close eye on LFP. Okay. Uh, because that, you know, and potentially by extension sodium ion, because, um, you know, this cell-to-pack packaging methodology, you're combining that with a material which doesn't contain cobalt, doesn't contain nickel. I mean, it's iron and phosphorus, um, you know, so so it's basically made of rust. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's super cheap. Um, and, you know, that it's, is it's also good enough, much basically. safer. Yeah, yeah. It's a safer chemistry as well. It's longer lived, um, you know, it's, it's more ethical, et cetera. It it has a lot of advantages and we'd previously written it off for cars, but all of a sudden it's making a resurgence. I would be very surprised if we didn't see more manufacturers adopting LFP over the next few years. So yeah, solid state definitely does have a place, but interestingly, the one that a lot of people had written off, the lithium ion chemistry that a lot of people had written off for cars, is, is making a comeback. This is interesting.
0: Okay. I, 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 you know, I don't have enough knowledge of, of solid state to kind of, I know they're, they do have their applications. I think they're used in medical equipment. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. um mm. but obviously that's just a, you know, like you said, there's a massive difference between what you have in your laptop or your mobile phone to what you have in, in an EV. It's a completely different mm-hmm. scale of, of, and an environment and use patterns, which actually reads me to lead, leads me, no reads me. Um, to my last question uh, mm-hmm. cause, uh, uh, the V2G used to be a massive thing that everyone was raving about and it was supposed to be the future and you know it it, it is certainly usable in loads of places but obviously most common household will have a one or two cars and you will use them during the day which is where you would yeah. charge it from sun uh, or whatever um, and you could recharge it at night but you know it's whenever it's either easy to charge or cheap to charge and usable to discharge it's away or it's not charging you know this it's a car it's a different uh, uh, um, its purpose is different Um, Hmm. the uh, battery like home battery storage seems to be on the on the app now and there's loads of companies offering different uh, sizes of the metals and so on and so forth and um, i i used to be a big proponent of v2g but these uh, but these days I'm I'm thinking um we could probably design batteries that are cheaper and uh, and we already probably have the technology to have those battery storage systems for houses um or domestic mm. storage uh, available uh what do you think do you think we need a different type of batteries for home storage or do we ho- already have it uh, what what's your take on it
1: well home storage uh, you know you're you're looking at uh a usage pattern that's very different to an electric vehicle because it's a more predictable load. It's uh, it was far less dynamic. It's far less kind of stabby with harsh acceleration and regenerative braking. Um, it's generally lower loads, more constant loads. Um, so it's an easier life for batteries. And that's where you are going to see a divergence towards um, cheaper chemistries that are maybe not necessarily as energy dense because there's more space to mount the home energy storage system or the commercial scale grid storage system. So again, LFP looks quite promising there. Um, I'm aware of some systems that use lithium titanate, which is a particularly expensive chemistry, but is very, very long lived. Um, And then the other option, which is quite interesting, is um, uh, second life electric vehicle battery modules, because they may have 70 or 80% of their original capacity left, which is considered end of life for automotive, but that's a lot of capacity for grid storage. And that means that for a home energy storage battery, the likes of which PowerVault make from second life EV batteries, um, or at least one of their product ranges that, they do ones with brand new cells as well. Um, you know, you're you're looking at many years of, of easy life for these cells, which would otherwise have been prematurely retired. So, yeah, I, I reckon we'll see an interesting mix of the second life EV battery um, within the domestic energy storage scene. We'll probably see, you know, LFP, sodium ion, um, and then, yeah, I mean, the the likes of Tesla, they are using NMC. The power wall, to be fair, has one of the highest capacities of any home energy storage system on the market at the moment, and it's also one of the cheapest per kilowatt hour capacity. One of the more expensive to buy, but you get a lot of value for money. So, um, yeah, the the argument is, do you really need to spend, uh, as a manufacturer, do you need to spend money on cobalt, which is expensive, on nickel, which is cheaper, but then again, iron is even cheaper. Again, you know, these materials—do uh, you need to spend big bucks on them for a battery system that's not overly space-constrained and is going to have quite an easy life?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the. To me, that's a very sort of interesting subject because I think more houses, especially in the UK, are uh, are able to gain a lot of sort of economical uh, uh, value from. Cheap energy storage, energy domestic energy storage, sort of mm-hmm. uh, uh, utilities, uh, uh, than from an EV, which is going to be more expensive. But then the question is, you know, um, like you said, Tesla batteries are uh, home uh, powerwalls are very cheap compared to other competitors per kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the initial outlay is still massive. So there's a massive sort of gap, and I just wonder if, there, if there's you know a room for somebody to Come in and say, okay, we have these five-year-old technology battery uh, uh, production lines ready, just to churn out loads of batteries that will fill mm. in the gap. Um, to me, that's that's where the sort of the market probably should be growing. But you know, I, I'm mm. by no means an expert in the, or a, analyst in that area. So, <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I mean, the, the vast majority of production lines, um, realistically. You know, if, if it's geared towards lithium-ion, it should be able to do just about any variant of lithium-ion, including newer, more modern chemistries, some of which are cheaper as well, um, you know, because you've got less cobalt content, etc. cetera. Yeah. So um, in terms of making older cells, with the, the thinking that they would be cheaper, that's not necessarily going to be true. Um, however, uh, you know, in terms of using a production line to, to churn out sort of cheaper cell chemistries, um which are still quite sturdy and reliable etc uh, for the home energy storage market that's that's absolutely something that could be done but the reason that a home energy storage battery is more expensive than an EV battery is because EVs are selling by the you know tens hundreds of thousands that kind of idea um, and the, the order quantities for the likes of uh, Samsung and Panasonic and all of that, you know, the big cell manufacturers is absolutely vast. And that means that the unit price of those cells comes down considerably, whereas home energy storage, you know, is taking off, but the manufacturers are buying less per, per product because you're yeah. typically single digits of kilowatt hours, maybe just breaking into the double as opposed to double, maybe breaking into the triple. With EVs. Um, and also they're selling less of them than EV manufacturers are selling of EVs. And as a result, you know, it's, it's um, economies of scale. So that's why you're looking at several hundred pounds per kilowatt hour for a home energy storage system battery. Whereas, rumour has it, Tesla is now getting its hands on, uh, I'll mention it again, LFP cells for between 60 and 80 dollars per kilowatt hour. And um, typically within the EV world, you're looking at about sorry to mix up my currencies here, but 100 to 150-ish pounds per kilowatt hour seems to be the industry average um, for EV cells. Yeah, yeah, so- and that's come down from about 10 times that when the yeah. Nissan Leaf was first launched and that, that is continuing to decline.
0: I, I'm curious, like your your day-to-day life as a, as a sort of, uh, as a battery expert, how, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be people interested and in, I think this is the, you know, we need engineers and we need, people mm. who research these things, plug yourself in, like, you know, what do you do, how people can actually, if anyone had a commercial needs to contact you, and how do people, if somebody's interest, younger and interested, how do they become somebody like yourself, you know, wh- where's the need, uh, you know, uh, in that sort of environment? I don't know, I I've, i don't have any particular question, I'll let you kind of have the floor and just <laughs> say your things. mm
1: mm-hmm. Well, um, I think yeah, I I kind of had an unusual route into this because I did an applied physics degree called renewable energy at the University of Dundee, and uh, I I ended up getting into battery tech because the person who would become my project supervisor drove up next to me in a Peugeot one hundred and six electric with NiCad batteries, which uh, I would ultimately end up doing my project on, buying off them. It would become my daily driver. As I commuted from Dundee to St Andrews when I was working with Peter Bruce's research group there before they relocated down south and uh, took me with them. Um, So that car is now in a transport museum awaiting its next big adventure uh, at Dundee uh, Museum of Transport. Uh, The intention is to fit new batteries to it like cutting edge stuff at some point. Anyway um, so yeah I I did an applied physics degree as I said um, and then ended up getting into a PhD with uh, an electrochemistry group. I would, you know, in terms of if you're based in, in England uh, in particular, then WMG, University of Warwick, and also just across the road from them, pretty much Coventry University are doing some really cool stuff on battery research. Um, and that includes engineering as well as the kind of hardcore electrochemistry side of it. Um, University of Birmingham is doing amazing work with battery recycling. Um, back up in Scotland, uh, there are you know, numerous different um, research groups within the kind of battery fields, but St Andrew's remains one of the, the more kind of prominent ones. Um, so Professor John Irvin, mostly associated with fuel cells, but they've also got a big battery research group there too. So that's worth checking out. Um, University of Edinburgh has been, been dabbling in this as well. And um, also like uh, keep an eye on, on what's happening over on the West Coast as well. Because within the sort of typical chemistry and electronic engineering sort of groups, you'll have people doing batteries and battery modelling and things. It's becoming an increasing, um, you know, an increasingly big setup that um, you know for for universities to pursue. In terms of the best kind of uh, degrees to have, um, certainly physics is is highly transferable, um, and you know you can make it uh, as a, as a Basically, you can make it what you want it to be. So that's a pretty cool situation. If you're doing a kind of sciencey kind of degree, like physics or chemistry, um, by all means, you can try and audit any more kind of electrochemistry goings on within your university. If you, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to have a, a pretty you know, good research group uh, within that university, uh, see if you can try and help out in the lab. That sort of thing. They're normally quite good at taking on project students um, to to assist and to learn. And to quite possibly end up doing their PhD and their postdoc there someday. So um, that's a really good option for you. Um, and then also you know, you've got the likes of your chemical engineering degrees, etc., which could potentially help as well. But yeah, it's, it's actually quite difficult because I'm trying to think, what did all of my, yeah, what did all my colleagues do? Because it wasn't what I did. I was the kind of odd one out. But yeah, anything that's broadly STEM-based um, you know, will, will, will get you in the door. Uh, particularly if you if you show the interest. And then there's the other side of it as well. Like there's mechanical engineers are required for optimum cooling mechanisms and module designs, um, which includes like, you know, modelling where the heat's going to accrue in bus bars and things like that, not just within the cells. Um, electronic engineers for the battery management system. Absolutely. So, you know, anything within kind of engineering as well as science. Um, civil engineers, it sucks to be you, but everything else <laughs> you're, you're in the door. You know, we, we might need to, oh no, civil engineers, there's a lot of gigafactories being built right now boom there you go <laughs> um you know so that that definitely helps um but yeah that's that yeah those are the the best kind of routes to to go and there's also quite a lot of um you know now that now that covid has hit everything's kind of moved online so um, you've got uh, quite a lot of uh, Webinars and teleconverses that are, are are coming up, um, and if you if you get involved in the kind of battery Twitterverse, um, then absolutely you'll know, keep an eye out for those those sort of things. Um, actually, that also brings in brings into mind some other notable uh, research groups to to check out. So you've got um, Billy Wu at Imperial College London uh, and his team, uh, Gregory Offer as well. It's kind of like this one big family, Dyson School of Design. Engineering Design and Imperial College London doing some fantastic work on all things battery from the mechanical side, from the modelling side, from the electrochemistry side. Um, Saifel Islam at uh, University of Bath, uh, one of the leading battery scientists in the country. He did the uh, the Royal Society Christmas lecture that was on the BBC a few years ago. An excellent educator. Um, he's, he's fantastic at uh, putting these Concepts across in a way that you can you can understand, um, and then also uh, it would be rude of me not to to mention my my former PhD supervisor. So I've mentioned Peter uh, Peter Bruce because uh, he's now located at Oxford, and when I moved down there, um, I also started to work not just with Peter Bruce's research group but David Howey's research group, um, and they again are. are probably more involved in the modelling and the battery management, the electronics side of things, but they are incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to batteries. And uh, yeah, they're excellent supervisors as well. Um, so you know, if you're if you're looking into PhD opportunities, that's kind of the main lot to consider within the UK at the moment. There will be a few more that'll inevitably come to mind as soon as we finish recording this podcast. But you know, those are the the kind of key ones that, that that come to mind. Oh well, so um, yeah, and the other one as well is if you go into academia and you're looking for a way into industry. Well, I mean, for a start, if you go to WMG, basically Jaguar Land Rover stand at the front doors with a net and just wait on PhD candidates and like, boom, you'll do it. You're working for us now. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there, but um, I would also keep an eye um, within, like if you're, if you're looking to go from academia to, to academia, to industry, um, another one that's absolutely worth keeping an eye on is Michelin Scotland Innovation Park, MSIP up in Dundee, uh, my adopted home city, uh, where I, I, I learned my trade and uh, drove my first EV and so on. Um, so it's the former Mitchell Tire Factory, uh, which closed down at the end of oh, sorry, the middle of last year, and has been renovated into uh, an energy park, a renewables park, a an e mobility park as well. There are some very very interesting businesses moving in there, and they are expanding, and they are looking for your expertise. We're talking batteries, we're talking fuel cells, we're talking you know the vehicles, the supply chain. Um, there's, there's all sorts of interesting things going on there. Uh, they are a very talented bunch. And then further north as well, you have Ampty Power and uh, Denshi Group as well, which have an interesting semi-detached battery factory up as far north as you can get on the mainland in Thurzl. Uh And they are both doing some really cool things to do with next generation battery tech and uh, battery systems as well so if you fancy the the romantic nature of the highlands and islands of scotland which if you've seen my sky road trip you'll definitely want it you'll definitely want to do that because it's just absolutely gorgeous what a fantastic setting to be so um they are absolutely worth checking out if the west midlands is just a bit too densely populated and a bit too concrete jungle for your liking There's ways that you can have it both ways you can have (laughs) cutting edge battery stuff and the most incredible scenery on your doorstep and by the way Dundee is an absolutely freaking amazing city as well it's getting all the culture vulture Uh, write-ups like absolutely stunning city and I miss it every day so yeah um, those are really really solid options to consider too.
0: Yeah, I, I'm the, the, just going back to our conversation. I had a uh, I had a thought when you were talking about the, um, and I might completely completely uh, butcher this, but the uh, you were talking about anodes and build up on the um, and that electrons are not very good at kind of stuck you know, laying flat basically on the anode mm. for lack of better uh, description. Mm. But I've always been told when I did uh, uh, electronics that um, the current will always choose the uh, the shortest path. The the path of least resistance. Is that uh, because of that or um, is that why they build up in sort of a tree, as you said, or branches, uh, uh, you know, the growth that uh, uh, gets on the anode or or builds up on the anode? or, Or is it, is there a different, does the physics work different on that level? from your group. Um
1: yeah it could it could be to do with localized current density and it could also be that um you know the lithium ions are, are going well this you know dendrite is closest kind of path to, to where i need to go so i'm just going to join on to that Okay um yeah but there will no doubt be some localized current densities within the cell due to the the design of it um because it's you know with the exception of of Tesla's tabless uh, cell design that's just actually in reality one gigantic tab that covers the entire edge of the cell to allow electrons in and out. Um, You know, most cells, there's there's kind of limited areas through which the electrons can enter and exit the electrode structure. So, you know, you'll end up with those localized bits where the the current is that much more dense and there'll be more or less lithium that's either removed from that electrode in the first place or plated back onto it. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what's going on there. Um, And then, of course, the path of least resistance once you've got an internal short circuit is the internal short circuit, and yeah. it just gets quite nasty from there. The,
0: the question that I often get asked uh, by people, and this is sort of, you know, like a geek, geeky uh, uh, me uh, thinks about that as well, like how how, how do you actually work on a, on a battery? What is the what is sort of day-to-day, you know, do you just just change different things, uh, you know, test a little bit of, uh, you've got mixture of different um, components in the electrolyte? Or how do you actually come about researching the batteries? What is the sort of the, the, the workflow there? Or you, do you have, you know,
1: yeah. I mean, there's, I've, I've worked on so many different levels down to the, the fundamental electrochemistry all the way up to kind of more packed design and integration. So it's, it's, it's too difficult to try and summarize that. But yeah, there will be some career paths slash projects where you will be, you know, um, arms deep in an argon glove box um trying to assemble a prototype chemistry that you've developed from scratch um into a, a little coin cell which will then go on to a, a battery tester to check its its performance at you know very small currents, but obviously the aim is that could be scaled up to something quite substantial. Um, there'll be days when you're taking a commercial cell apart in that glove box to see what the degradation is like after a long run um of, of cycling, you know, doing like an automotive duty cycle, that kind of idea for for a couple of months. Um You know, they'll be setting up those tests where you're rigging up, you know, big modules and things uh, and and preparing them for various different test procedures with, uh, you know, varying temperatures, varying loads, varying, um, you know, like other kind of electrochemical things you can do, like impedance tests and things that kind of detect what the the health of the battery is at that point. Um, And then, you know, obviously there's the, the, as I said, you know, there's the, the more kind of module Design as well as looking at a particular application and the available space and the chemistry that would allow you to get the capacity and the performance that you require, um, and kind of doing more of an y head scratchy thing around that. Um, yeah, there's I've I've kind of dabbled in in a lot of this uh, over the last decade or so, and it's been quite nice to have that that broad range. Um, I've I've worked with some very talented people who do the modeling side of it as well, so they'll find okay. a way to um, you know to to mathematically mimic what is going on inside the cell, and then they can use that modelling to predict the remaining useful life of a cell based on a handful of cycles of of data. Um, So you can say, yes, this particular cell, because, oh, sorry, identical cells, there'll be a piece-to-piece variation between them on the same production line. It can be the silliest little thing that can result in a difference in the lifespan or the internal resistance of that cell, and being able to identify that very early on allows you to grade those cells and um, you know match them to appropriate applications or or grade them. So if you want the grade A stuff, you pay more. If you want the grade D stuff, then yeah, it's pretty cheap. If you're just going to be using it for home energy storage, not an issue. If you're going to be using it in Formula E. Probably want the grade A, mate. You know that sort of thing. Um, being able to uh, to to grade that sort of stuff is a very expensive and time consuming thing to do. But with these you know, with these kind of clever models that they're coming up with in 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 research groups and, and businesses around the country, around the world, then um, you know the idea is to get that down to seconds, ideally. Uh, and and do that reliably. So um yeah we're getting we're, we're now seeing uh, math petitions and and machine learning gurus coming in um who've never thought about electrochemistry before and taking electrochemists efforts best efforts at modeling and just smashing it out of the park. So this is is a really interesting time. Yeah. Um I mean that said, you know the modeling side of it is you know I'm I'm I've always been more Fundamental electrochemistry, uh cell teardowns, cell, you know, cell and module testing and, and, and sort of next gen design, that sort of idea. Um I've I've supported a lot of modelling, but there's some some very bright minds who who do the kind of mathematical side of it. And yeah, the what they've achieved has been incredible. I've been very lucky to work with a good two or three key people come to mind and they know who they are, uh, who've who've done some incredible things there.
0: It does sound very fascinating. I, I I used to work, when I was much younger, I used to work with a lady named Bettina from Austria, who uh, in her previous life, she was a SQL database uh, uh, specialist, and she used to work for, um uh, I can't remember which one, a drug uh, research manufacturing company, and they were all do- doing all their testing and modeling in, in, in databases. You know, uh ML and AI wasn't a thing back then; it wasn't called mm. that, uh, but it was essentially that. So it was all modeling and, you know, all the- theoretical. And I just wondered how that, like, the common question you would you would uh, ask these days is, you know, do we know how all the materials will behave if they were used for the battery? Is it just a matter of now kind of combining the one, the best ones we know about and just testing them in in lab, or is there still a lot of unknowns that we can discover in the future? Basically, is the uh, it's a simple question.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, we're starting to see um, attempts to use modeling to be able to predict the best materials to use in batteries. Um, that's definitely coming through. But there's still a lot of trial and error in the lab as well. Okay. Um, for a start, you know, what the model says is actually a good material. And then being able to make a little prototype of that and then being able to scale that up to an automotive scale prototype and prove that it can last However many cycles, um, you know, before it dies, that's all a very different process. And that normally takes a few years, but the modeling should help to reduce that. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. That's something that we're starting to see. So if you are less hands-on, but you're very good, sort of on a mathsy, machine learning, AI sort of side, you can absolutely get in on this. And um, It's far more interesting than just copping out and doing the usual fintech thing if you want to really help the world then yeah this is this is the place to be this, I've, this, I've, it's, it's the wild west at the moment you could be the the next professor john Goodenough. you you could be the you know the, the, the godfather of the lithium-ion battery you yeah. could be the professor john Goodenough. enough he's, he's amazing like his life sight.
0: If, if if some yeah. if whoever's watching this never heard of uh, uh professor uh, uh good enough just stop watching this and just come back later obviously but just look him up he's he's oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. 97
1: <laughs> um, no well 97 years old he was when he won that nobel prize he was kind of like it was like when leonardo dicaprio finally won an oscar everyone's like about time <laughs> it's been so yeah, long yeah I, do you have no idea how good this man is so um yeah and he's still going he's still working away he, yeah. he just loves what he does he's great yeah yeah
0: uh, well, I, you know, like I said, I, I I do have probably more questions, but I I am uh, conscious of, of of the time. Um, I did warn you that you know uh, that- this can go <laughs> for a bit, uh, but way, this was an yeah. inter- very interesting uh, discussion, and uh, and uh, you know, uh, no wonder everyone was telling me all the time, just speak to you and speak to you and speak to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, um, thank you very much for your time, and uh, and uh, hope we can meet in person one day, because you know. I miss travelling and meeting people in, 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 in face-to-face and talking to them face-to-face.
1: True, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, eventually there will be, you know, hopefully the, the vaccination situation will go well this year. And certainly next year, I would hope that we'd have fully charged live, we'd have EVs in the park, we would have, um, well, Formula E in in London. Um, I, you know, the intention is to uh, make a, a cameo appearance at those at some point. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Cool. If you If you spot me, give me a shout.
0: Will do, will do. Now you know how I look like, so.
1: Yep. <laughs> There's no hiding. Absolutely.
0: Anyway, thank you very much for your time and uh, hope yeah, to for see you.
1: Yeah, on. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.